And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Thank you for joining us. I'm Tom Laurie, and I'll be your host today. Our guest mentor today is Tom Burbage. Tom served as a Navy fighter pilot and test pilot prior to his role working for Lockheed Martin Aeronautical Systems, where he rose to executive vice president and general manager. He was the long-term leader of both the F-22 Raptor and the F-35 Lightning II development programs. Tom is joining us today to share his insights on leading and managing the Rubik's Cube of all weapons development programs, and that is the F-35. This fascinating and inspiring saga of the F-35 Lightning II from its inception as a near-impossible dream, its long and troubled gestation, the building of an international partnership, and its current standing as the West Frontlight Fighter around the world is told in detail in Tom's book, The F-35, The Inside Story of the Lightning II. A link will be provided in our show notes at TheMentorRadio.com. Welcome, Tom, to The Mentors. We're delighted and honored to have you with us today. Let's start by telling everybody what is the F-35. The F-35 is a multi-role, multi-service, multinational airplane uh, designed to replace the inventories of uh, all the fighter um, squadrons in that group of of entity. So it's it's designed to be operated by um, a large group of diverse uh, air forces, but when they come together, they can fly and fight together in the same weapon system. And it's uh, called a fifth generation. What does that mean? Or it is well, the fifth generation. They sort of reverse engineered what the different generations are. You know, the, started out in the early days of fighter pilots in World War One, where where the pilot were carrying pistols and trying to shoot other airplanes with guns in their hands. Um, and of course, they were flown by propellers. So getting through the propeller without shooting off a propeller blade or having something ricochet back to you was a big challenge. Um, when we got into the second generation of fighters, then it was more speed and altitude related. We could go to much higher altitudes and much faster speeds. And third generation brought in some some uh, new sensors like radar and, and those kind of uh things that would help detect uh, targets at longer range and help uh, improve accuracy. Fourth generation, which tends to be what populates most of the squadrons today, um, are very capable, but did not have the dimension of stealth or fully integrated avionics. And that's what fifth gen bought, brought with it with the F-22 and then the F-35 was to fully integrate the avionics, uh, make the pilot a tactician and not a, a manager and, uh, and be able to um, attack covert or heavily defended targets with their stealth capabilities. Now, this program was gigantic and it was complex. How many people were involved and how over how many countries? It began uh, with a partnership of nine nations. In the U.S., we had three separate services, which sometimes act as separate nations. But we had three separate services. But then the United Kingdom 
which had already been teamed with the U.S. on a replacement for the for the short takeoff vertical landing Harrier, uh, was a, was the key partner. And then subsequent to the contract award, seven other countries joined the program. The Italians and the Dutch were at a at a higher level than the others. And then subsequent to that, we came in with Canada, Turkey, Norway, Denmark, and Australia. Uh, most were previous F-16 operators. A couple were F-18 operators like Canada and Australia, but all of them were in the process of modernizing their air forces, and this was going to be the airplane that would do that. And it's a stealth fighter. And what is what does that really mean, stealth? I know it means it's invisible, but what did you have to do to make the plane stealth? The first uh, stealth, real stealth fighter type airplane was the F-117, and that came out out of the closet in uh, probably the early 90s and was was part of the uh, of the uh, war on terror and, and Iraq and other places. So so it, it allowed an airplane to become very covert and penetrate airspaces that were heavily defended. Um, what it didn't have was connectivity with other airplanes that were doing the same things. It was pretty much an alone and unafraid type mission. Um, as the technology developed, um, the aerodynamic performance of the airplane could improve. Uh, the integrated avionics and the sharing of data could improve. And until today, the technology allows you to be really an information node on the battle space internet, um, as much as it is a weapon that can penetrate heavily defended airspaces and attack a strategic target. And... I noted also that it says the plane allows the pilot to adapt to change. What do you mean by that? The pilot um, is, is I like to say, the pilot is watching the movie. He's in the cockpit. His sensors are all doing what they need to do to present him with a fully integrated picture, and he can observe the world around him. He's not trying to decide what's the radar telling me, what's this other system over here telling me. He's just watching the movie. He doesn't care who the actors are. He doesn't care... Uh, really about anything but managing the mission. And by doing that, he can observe what other forces are doing around him before they even know he's in the area. That allows him to adapt. A good example is if a threat aircraft is coming towards him, he'll see that aircraft, but that aircraft won't see him. And he can avoid, he can engage, he has choices he can make on how he's going to deal with that threat. So he can adapt very quickly as he sees everything. Correct. So in my notes, it said there were 20,000 people involved, direct employees, and maybe 60,000 indirect employees. Well, um, that's a difficult number to, to calculate because there's a large government infrastructure, you know, with all the bases and, and the program offices and the test organizations. And there's a large industrial um, organization, too. So whether that number is just the industry side or whether that includes everything, I, I would suspect it's the industry side because there's a lot of companies involved. There's there's some 3,000 small suppliers around the world. Industrial participation in the program was one of the incentives that the US government used to, to allow the other eight partner countries to come in and join the project. And that meant we had to go out and find countries that could actually do work on the, on the project. Most, uh, most manufacturing industries couldn't at the time deal with the precision required to build a stealthy airplane. You have to be very, very precise in your measurements and and uh, very, very accurate on what you're doing. So we basically had to remake the industrial uh, complex. And a lot of those countries um, that were participating didn't have mature or sophisticated aerospace industries at the time. So that was a big part of the project. 
But that that employment number again, I think, is the number of employees that are projected to be in the industrial footprint that is building the airplane today. So it really changed the uh, aero defense industry, didn't it? The whole project in terms of what you were doing. It did. It, it changed. That's why we sometimes refer refer to it as a Rubik's cube. It changed the way you're going to own and operate the airplane. It changed the way the services interact with each other. Changes the way we interact with our allies. And it changes the way the industrial community had to come together to form the global supply chain. Well, we're going to come right back after a word from our sponsors. We're with Tom Burbage, and and he's sharing his leadership insights that he gained from the development of the F-35. This is Tom Laurie, and you're listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and I'm with former Navy pilot and test pilot Tom Burbage, who rose to vice president and general manager at Lockheed Martin to oversee the development of both the F-22, the Raptor, and then the F-35, the Lightning II, which was the most ambitious aerospace endeavor in history. So when we were talking in the last segment, I just wanted to close out that this effort, uh, the F-35, uh, was a, a radical departure. And it also has changed um, our position in the world with regards to uh, security, as I'm sure you'll go along with that. And I, I, one of the questions I had that I forgot to drop in on the first segment, how does the EU and other country view our dominance in this field of uh, aerospace development? Um, I think the, the ability of the United States and the budget capability that we have compared to other smaller air forces allows us to do things um, that other countries can only uh, watch. And, and I think that's why we have such a, uh, a large following uh, and interest in the um, F-35. Since, since the original partnership of nine nations, that, that group has now swelled to 19. And it was driven in some measures by the um, northern, the European conflict that's going on now with between Russia and Ukraine. A number of countries came in wanting to equip themselves with the latest uh, capabilities. Shortly following that, um, and, I, and I can go through the different countries and what they do for us. I, I personally think that there's two areas in the world that are kind of becoming the main um, alliance areas. One is the Arctic with the melting of the Arctic, and every country around the Arctic now is now an F-35 owner and operator. And the other one is, is the South China Sea with the expansion objectives of China. And we have um, Japan, Korea, Singapore, and Australia in the Pacific, along with the U.S. deployment of their supercarriers. So there's a significant F-35 presence in both areas, which is kind of interesting if you think about it, because that may drive a new sense of alliances around the globe coming, out, coming off of the NATO and the older alliances that have been there for quite some time. So, And I, I know think in the South, Southeast China, the shipping lanes are all important. It's all about the shipping lanes. Correct. Correct. So now there's a significant presence of, of uh, operators that can fly and fight together. Yes, which I know a little bit about as my stepson is a two-star general in the Air Force. And I went to Montgomery, Alabama once and met a lot of different people from a lot of different countries, learning a lot of, about a lot of things together. I won't get into the details. Uh, so then your role. You were at Lockheed Martin. What 
were you, what were you actually charged with responsibility for the entire project? The the first time I arrived on the F thirty five, I had already been through the F twenty two and and other programs, but the F thirty five was potentially going to be different. It hadn't. Uh, it was a competitive phase. We were competing against Boeing. We had small teams that were trying to fly prototype. Uh, they call them X airplanes, the X planes. And we were trying to gather enough data to verify that what we were proposing to do was actually going to be what we were going to do. And uh, the contract, I got to the program the first uh, week of the first flight of the first X airplane. And then we went through this extensive proposal phase to compete and win the program against Boeing. Um, and then we were a relatively small group at that time. Then when the, when the program actually awarded the contract, and some people forget that it was only about six weeks after 9-11, so there was a rush to build a coalition of the willing, not that the F-35 would be part of that operation, but to get the allies thinking and about fighting together. And the contract was awarded immediately upon the down select. Normally, you get a couple of months to build up your staff and your forces and your teams. We didn't get that luxury. Uh, the day after the announcement, we were under contract. At that point, we grew from about, we had maybe 180 people in Fort Worth at the time. At the one year later, we had about 4,000. So that's a pretty uh, massive human resource challenge to, to bring people uh, and make them productive when they're coming in at such a high rate. And, and smaller numbers, but the same kind of percentages were taking place at our partners, Northrop Grumman and BAE System. So huge uh, human factor growth in our engineering staffs during that first year. In fact, our number one risk, according to the government, was our ability to staff to the program that rapidly. But we quickly grew, and, um, and we were several thousand people in several different places uh, within a year of the time the contract was awarded. Well, I've learned that that problem of staffing and rapid growth is a major, major challenge for anybody, whether you're going from 4,000 to 15,000 or from 100 to 1,000. How did you – I mean, I have certain – um, a philosophy about that. What is your philosophy about how to tackle that problem effectively? Well, my, my strategy, and it wasn't just me, it was the people that were working on this. So we, we, first, we had to bring together three major prime contractors, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and BA Systems. Forget about the rest of the supply chain. We weren't at that point yet. We were just trying to get the engineering started. And to do that, we had to form a culture of trust and res responsibility to each other um, which is not necessarily what you do when you have three prime contractors trying to work together, where everyone historically has been a prime. So we wanted to build a JSF culture, we called it, quote, unquote. Uh, I, I didn't feel like the culture of any one of the companies left on its own was going to allow us to actually execute this program well. So we started with a bunch of different um, initiatives. I had all the program managers for all of the previous generation airplanes. There was about 10 or 12, F-117. A6, F-18, Eurofighter, invited them all to Fort Worth, and we had a conference before we actually won the contract and said, if you were sitting where we're sitting, you're about to win a program of this size, what would you make sure that you thought about and did? I didn't know if any would come, but they all came, and we learned a lot of lessons on things that we should be watchful for as we went through this growth phase that was ahead of us. And we did a lot of other things, too, on just trying to make sure everybody's wearing the JSF T-shirt, not wearing the company badge. Um, and that's what you sort of have to do. You have to have common, um, you know, common objectives. So you have to have common uh, behavioral norms. 
And you could walk into a conference room in England or in California or in Texas, and you see the same posters in all of them because we were constantly trying to reinforce, this is the way we're going to operate, uh, not necessarily align completely with your own individual company norms. This is what we think we need to do. And those norms were developed by the group. They weren't developed by me. And uh, and we reviewed them every time we had a meeting. We review those as the first step. Or how are we doing on this? This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We are with Tom Burbage, who led the development of the F-35. Culture, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I've learned if you, if you go back and look at companies and their founders and their initial culture, as it grows, you'll see the culture. I mean, every company has a culture. And what I've learned in rapid growth, if you have a strong culture, uh, as people come in, they will adapt to it. And if there's bad people that come in, they get spit out by the culture. Somebody will nail them and they'll go. They just find it's not home for them. So that is such an important uh, lesson uh, to share. Uh, so then you, what? what is a little bit about your career path that brought you to this very important role? I was a I was a Navy guy first. Uh, I came out of high school. My father was a career naval officer. He'd actually been in. He was at Pearl Harbor when the strike occurred there. He was a career naval Navy guy. And my role models and sort of mentors on the way up were all Navy pilots. So I wanted to be a Navy pilot and I wanted to go to the Naval Academy, which I did. And then and then when I graduated, um, I went through the squadron routine. I really loved the Navy um, and what I was doing there. And I got to go through the Navy Test Pilot School, which is a very unique. Um, academic experience. You learn about airplanes half a day and you go fly them in the other half. Um, and then um, about 10 years, 11 years into that, um, I was at sea most of the time. I had three small children. I was sep I was growing apart from my family as opposed to together with them. So I decided to go another route, went into the reserves and, and got hired by Lockheed Martin. Um, from that point, uh, my industry career took me a different direction, but I was always watching leadership. I learned a lot from my military days. I tried to translate that into the leadership uh, requirements for the different positions I was in. We're going to come right back after a short break. We're with Tom Burbage, who led the world's most ambitious aerospace endeavor, the development of the F-35, from vision to victory. You can listen to the show and past shows on all popular podcast platforms or by going to our website, thementorsradio.com. Subscribe while you're there so you don't miss any future shows. That is TheMentorsRadio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie. I'm with former Navy pilot and test pilot Tom Burbage, who rose to vice president and general manager at Lockheed Martin to oversee the development of both the F-22 Raptor and then the F-35, the Lightning II, which is the most ambitious aerospace endeavor in history. So coming back to your role, what were the unexpected challenges that you found as you stepped into um leading the development of the F-35. You'd done the, the, you'd done the Raptor, you came to F-35. What was different? What what challenges did you face? The, the, the Raptor was a US only project and it was Air Force only, even though in the early days there was a Navy version of it, but it never went to fruition. Um, so the F-35 was now coming on as multi-service, multinational, 
much bigger in terms of uh, concept in terms of industry. And um, there was a thought that it could actually change the whole shape of the U.S. defense industry. And in fact, that's what it did. When, um, when Lockheed was uh, selected as the winner, uh, McDonnell Douglas and, and Boeing merged and Northrop Grumman and BA came in and joined the Lockheed Martin team and the whole the whole prime contractor infrastructure in the defense industry sort of morphed over the next few years uh, to accommodate the fact that um, you know that that program was going to potentially be as big as it was projected to be. It's one of the big uh, challenges on all these programs is that they sustain their original projections from a business case standpoint because there's heavy heavy investment required to compete and win the project. And the history of Times as that most of them get truncated quite early. The B two certainly got truncated early with twenty one airplanes, I think it was, and and the F twenty two with uh, I think we had one hundred eighty seven projected originally to be seven hundred fifty. So, so they so they, there was a lot of skepticism about whether F thirty five would really grow to be that big. And then there were some challenges. It's interesting the term that in your opening comment was the long and troubled gestation. That's part that's written in the book on the cover. And the fact of the matter is that any big program cannot predict all the technical uh, risk in the program, particularly when you're doing a highly integrated project. And when that technical risk comes to pass, additional time is required to resolve it. That time equals dollars. And then suddenly it's an overrun and, and troubled. Almost every program that's uh, delivered a product at the end has, has carried those two labels. What really fed that, um, and then you asked what, what was uh, a surprise there were, there were probably two things that surprised me a little bit along the way. One was the rise of social media and the ability of critics, no matter whether they were in Australia or the Netherlands or anywhere else, to suddenly have a voice. And you don't have to have facts. You just have to have a voice. So we were we were in a defensive crouch uh, most of the time during the early days, just trying to protect budgets and, you know, and maintain uh, support for the program. Um, the other one was the way software was becoming uh, such a huge element of uh, in managing uh, risk in it, because this was the first time we actually went into fusion and, and uh, highly, highly integrated software-based systems. Um, and at the same time, the whole software industry was going from mainframe computers to distributed similar capability at your desk. And that sort of that, that enabled our ability to connect the engineers around the world. We had a thing called follow the sun engineering, where as the sun set on one day, it was just coming up on another part of the world where our engineers were the resident and we could do engineering 24 seven at without paying overtime costs, if you think about it that way. So there was a, it was quite a, quite a few dynamics that were happening um, in addition to the, just the complexity of the number of participants. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We're with Tom Burbage, who led the development of the F-35. Now, it's my understanding what over a thousand of these F-35s have been delivered. Uh, that was the. I think that's correct. At, at the end of this year, there were, there was going to be a thousand out there. Um, a number are operating on home soil of the international partners. Uh, first, the first country to actually take the airplane into a, a combative situation w would have been Israel. Um, other than the U.S. forces that have been supporting operations in Syria and places like that, so so the the pop the world population of F-35s is growing. And in many cases, I was just in Denmark in October for the delivery of their first airplane. So. In many cases, the squadrons are still quite small. I don't think the the true value of the program is when international allies and the three services can fly and fight together as a unit. And we're not at that point yet. We are with some in some cases, 
And I can give you just a real quick example. The Queen Elizabeth uh, is flying the stove short takeoff vertical landing version of the airplane, as is the U.S. Marine Corps and as are the Italians. And all three of them were flying off of the Queen Elizabeth in the Mediterranean last year. First time three nations have been flying off of a capital ship that didn't belong to the United States. Wow. That's something. The the cost is, what, about $90 million a piece? What's the price list of one plane today? Cost is another one of those issues that's really hard to define because some people want to know what the unit recurrent, what's the flyaway cost if I want to buy one on the showroom floor like your car. Some people want to know what's the cost to maintain it over its lifetime. But on the flyaway cost, there's three versions of the airplane. Uh, the, the least expensive is the Air Force version, and that's one being made in the most quantities. And it's, well, it's very competitive, even lower than most of the fourth generation airplanes. It's around $70 million a piece, and sometimes a little bit less. Um, the next one is the Marine Corps version, which adds an additional engine propulsion capability, and that cost adds to the cost of what would have been the Air Force airplane. That comes in probably around um, between 90 and 100. And then the largest airplane is the Navy version because it carries uh, has a bigger wing, carries more fuel, heavier landing gear, has to withstand catapults and arresting gear type forces. And that's uh, just slightly more than the Marine Corps version. So there's a different price in terms of of which version you're buying, but the one they tend to look at is the Air Force version, and um, it's it's uh, I think it's latest ones I saw is in the high 60s. So when you talked earlier about the uh, technical risks and doing something that no one's ever done before, uh, that's the world I live in, and startups and biotech, I understand that completely. And as I tell people, when you go out and raise money, they want to know how you're going to where you're going and how you're going to get there. And you tell them, I'm going to Chicago, we're taking I-80. And they get very upset when you get to Reno and you call them up and say, you know, we've learned so much. We have to go to Las Vegas first. And then we yeah. got to go to Santa Fe. We'll eventually get to Chicago. But people who get involved in development, that is the nature of uh, breakthrough development. Uh, it just is what it is. You you had a uh, comment in the book about you had to argue smarter, not harder. What do you mean by that? Um, there's a lot of opinions that are expressed by people that don't really understand what you're dealing with down at the actual site level. And uh, there's there's lots of examples of that. Um, you know, I had used to have meetings that go in to do budget um, activity on the Hill. I go into one of the committee's staff members and they would tell me how to fix the problem we were having in Fort Worth, 1,500 miles away. And we used to label that the 1,500 mile screwdriver. Um, they just did. You know, there's there's a lot of opinions on what we ought to be doing uh, without really understanding what the issues were. So we had to be able to enter those arguments. Cost was another one. We had to be able to enter those arguments with a sound basis of fact and and even statistics. And often those are lost today in many arguments, particularly political ones that are going on you know around the world uh, today. So we just had to we had to know what we were saying. There's also an understanding issue. A lot of people that we talk to that are in key positions, whether they're in our Congress or the parliaments of the international countries or the defense departments of those smaller international partners that um, didn't understand what stealth was, for example. So how do you tell someone who doesn't have the engineering background or the technical background to understand what advantage that gives you? So we had to we had to be able to make those arguments without just being defensive about the fact that you know we've got issues we're dealing with. I've run into that context. <laughs> I got it. 
We're up against a short break. Stay tuned. We'll be back with our discussion with Tom Burbage on the development of the F-35. If you're interested in learning a lot more about the human and technical challenges of the F-35, you can get Tom's book, F-35. We will have a link on our website, thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with former Navy pilot and test pilot Tom Burbage, who rose to vice president and general manager Lockheed Martin to oversee the development of both the F-22, the Raptor, and then the F-35, the Lightning II, which was the most ambitious aerospace endeavor in history. If you're listening to the show on your favorite podcast platform, please scroll down and add a five-star review. You can be a big help to those who are seeking the wisdom that we share on life and career. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about the um, leadership aspects, and particularly because you touched on it. Uh, you're dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity when you start these programs. People don't realize that there is no cookbook. You're creating the cookbook. You have certain knowns, um, but a lot of unknowns. How did you personally uh, deal with ambiguity? And then how did you deal with it from a team standpoint? Well, um, it's a high-pressure situation when you're on a project like this. It's got all the... Um, visibility and and kind of global um, observers that are out there watching everything you do and and budget concerns uh, you know the annual budget cycle in the US is replicated in all the parliaments of the partner countries so they're they're all fighting to uh, preserve budget and and keep the program on track from a funding standpoint so there's just um there's lots of things you have to deal with and one thing that uh, can be especially troubling is that the morale inside the program, gets really down because of all the pressure of this. And you might have a technical issue that you're not immediately resolving and you know it's gonna take a while to do that. And we had one of those, the major one was, we were sort of projecting weight growth on the on the uh, vertical landing airplane, which is really critical on that particular version. And you have to you have to take measures to keep uh, the spirits up on the team. And so we, we um, we had a uh, weight reduction team and we tried to incentivize engineers. If you come up with a good idea, you'll get a little bit of money. If you if the air, if the idea makes it on the airplane, you get a little bit more money, those kind of things. But um, one of the ones that I thought was especially good was the senior engineers. Um, we, had, we had mentoring and reverse mentoring going on. The senior engineers knew how to develop an airplane, but weren't, too, weren't all that good in the early days on computer skills. The young engineers coming in were really good on computer skills, but didn't have the background on how to develop an airplane. So they were sort of teaching each other. It's kind of interesting to watch, but it drove a closeness between folks. So, so we had a um, a couple of uh, senior engineers that we said, okay, we're going to pull you out of the fray. You're going to be the wizards. I want you to walk around and and look over the shoulder and make sure that everybody's doing the right thing, um, which they really enjoyed doing that. That was kind of what they wanted to do was mentor the young kids. Um, and so we, they, every now and then there'd be a mistake or something wasn't going right. So they had a little room outside their office complex that was called the woodshed. And if you did something wrong, you went to the woodshed. It was all meant in fun. And uh, of course, the first time you go, you're not sure what's going to be that much fun or not. But they get the young engineers in there and they teach them how to do it, you know, where their mistakes were, what they were doing better. So we, we tried to make, to, to defuse some of that stress. And for Anybody that's listening that gets into a project where you have a lot of internal stress driven by deadlines and driven by uncertainties, 
on whether you're going to get to the eventual answer or not. Um, it's always good to try and decompress that situation by making sure that the leaders are maintaining their sense of humor. We're all going to get there, but you know, if you don't, uh, and we had some behavioral issues that we had to just take a person out of a position because they were more the cracking the whip than they were trying to get to the end result. And what did you do for yourself to maintain your sanity? Well, we got to the point where the program uh, really couldn't be managed by a single person. I was a general manager for the first three or four years. And then it got to the point where uh, there was so much outside requirement to keep everybody on board. And that's in direct conflict with sitting in and managing the contract activity day to day. So we brought us another guy in, very experienced guy, who had also been the president of one of the Lockheed Martin smaller companies. And, and he ran, he sat in the conference room and ran the day-to-day -day execution of the contract while I was now becoming the outward face. Uh, when the budget activity was going on in Washington, I would have an apartment up there and I'd live in Washington for a couple of weeks, talking to all four of the major staffs that were controlling the budget and similar activities in each of the partner countries. So I was spent a lot of time on airplanes uh, flying around the world, but you couldn't do that and also stay with your hand in the day-to-day -day contract activity. So it drove a little bit of a new, of a different management structure from previous programs that were like this, but this wasn't like previous programs in terms of its multidimensional complexities. So he was like a COO and you were the CEO. Yeah, it was, that was a good way of thinking about it, but we were also peers. So, right. Uh, but he did the operating thing and you did the outward facing and but what did you do i mean did you run did you go out and do your i know you love crew did you crew what What did you do to relieve the stress personally what did you do to get away from it well you have to that's uh one of the things that i learned by observing people i i try to observe leadership trend, uh, traits and tendencies that i wanted myself to be thought of <laughs> And, and avoid the ones that I really didn't like. And there was a couple of them, you know, um, in terms of uh, health and fitness, I think it's really important that you let people have time to do that uh, because it wasn't uh, it wasn't uncommon to have people working 12, 15 hours a day for very long stretches trying to get to the conclusion of a technical issue that had come up that we didn't have an answer for when we started. So you have to watch health and you have to watch uh, human interaction if you want to keep the team performing at a high level. Um, you just have to do that. I, I personally would uh, try to, when I get out of the airplane, I would try to find a gym or, or I'd try to find a, let, go talk to somebody and let me borrow their shell and row their boat. Um, and that became kind of a bucket list item for me to try and row with all the different partner countries. It gave me something to really look forward to when I got out there. Um, but you have, I mean, you just have to do that or, or health becomes an issue and then morale becomes a secondary effect of that also. So. Um, those are all things that, that leaders, I think, have to worry about. The other one that I really had a problem with was, was when somebody thought they were the smartest person in the room. That's a leadership style that can really drive morale into the ground when nobody has the right answer but the guy who's talking to the to the person. Um, you have to be a listener. You know, you have to recognize that other people have insights that you might not have, and you have to almost coach coach the team to get to where they need to be, as opposed to uh, directing them where they need to be. 
We're going to come right back for our last uh, crack at this. We're with Tom Burbage, who led the world's most ambitious aerospace endeavor, the development of the F-35. You'll also find our show notes and a link to Tom's book, F-35, on our website, thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I am with former Navy pilot and test pilot Tom Burbage, who oversaw the development of the F-22 and the F-35. So you've got this very complex project. You've got all these uh, contractors. You do have a COO. Uh, You've got all these countries. You're flying all over the world. How do you and your group prioritize things and then how did you follow up and there was a, uh, a something i love that i found in there about what did you what are you what are you doing how are you doing and how do you know if you're doing it i think that was a something that i found in there talk a little bit about that yeah that's general jack hudson who was the first um, major peo after the contract was awarded he's a good friend of mine um and he would wander the hallways and talk to the engineers and talk to the hourly workers on the production line and he goes uh they'd all go he'd say how are you doing and they all go great everything's great and he says how do you know and then they'd all stop and think about well how do i answer the general and how, how do i know is it just a, is it just a stock reply or do i am i really doing great or not and that that little play that he did always led to a much more in-depth conversation with somebody about so are you sure you know where you are in all this i love um, that yeah, yeah, it was good. It was a really good technique, I thought. And then on how you set priorities. Yeah, and pr- priorities are, are uh, always a challenge. We we would spend a lot of time trying to develop the top objectives that we would have for some horizon, uh, and that horizon always got closer and closer as the program got more complex because you had to get things done by a certain time. So we would status how we were doing against those objectives, and if things would come in that were outside of those objectives, we would try to not spend you know, precious time on that. The only real resource you have when you're trying to manage a program this big is hours in the day, you know, and you can't spend all of them doing this because uh, then you get the other issue we talked about on health and well wellness and things like that. So you have to compartmentalize. One thing that I've always heard that uh, particularly Navy pilots are good at is compartmentalizing. You can, you can force out other things that you should be thinking about, family, friends, those kind of things, and concentrate on the landing you're about to do on a night, on a night, rainy night on the ship. Uh, so compartmentalization is important. Um, I, one of the uh, social media advance, and all of a sudden you're getting emails all hours of the day from all the different time zones around the world. I, I had a desire to not close my working day without knowing everything that I had received up to at least that point in time. But the but the amount of emails don't allow you to read them all. So so I would I would get them and I would uh, immediately flag put a flag on the ones that I had to go answer. And just Mark has read everything else. And that allowed me to, to take hundreds of emails that I'd get every day and get it down to maybe 12 that required an immediate response. But if I had to sit there and read all of those, that would have taken half of my available time during the day. So that same technique has to be applied to almost every other piece of your day, your schedule, you know, your meetings. Um, you have to prioritize your hours because really that's the major resource that everyone has when you're trying to get to an end goal on something that's this complex even deciding what country what country you're going to visit next 
you know, uh, tends to be, that's, you just don't think about that, but that's one of the issues where, where you have a, a major issue going in some parliamentary group and you'd have to get on a plane and fly that night to go try and solve it. Well, I did a lot of international traveling. I tried to bundle trips as much as I could. So if I went over to Europe, I did two or three cities rather than just one. But before yeah. we're going to run out of time here, I want to ask one, a couple more questions. The role of patience and leadership, your thoughts? You know, um, there's a term that I've heard lately called servant leader, which uh, which takes you out of the role of being the the guide on that's, you know, that's everybody follows. It takes you more into to understanding how your workforce needs to be listened to. And you need to be tolerant of the fact that sometimes you're trying to defy the laws of physics on some of these things, and it's not going to be an immediate answer. So you have to be patient and allow people to do their best and contribute their best to the end result that you're trying to achieve. It's a really important piece of leadership, I think. And sometimes it's it, it gets lost in the shuffle as you, as the pressure mounts and you got to meet a deadline and you're trying to satisfy some almost artificial end date. So one of the things uh, that I like to talk about is purpose. Do you feel that you were put on this planet to do exactly what you've done? And do you have some more things that you have to do to fulfill your purpose? Uh, I've been really lucky, you know, and, and I think if I was going to pass on one piece of advice, it would be to get out of your comfort zone. Because so much of my valuable, I think my valuable contributions and also valuable to me as a as growth elements to my um, my responsibilities has been the ability to take assignments that I thought twice about taking. And that sometimes I thought this might be career ending. Am I do I really want to do this? And then when you get into that scenario, you you grow, you learn, and um, it, it's important to to not just stay in your comfort zone for everything you're doing. Um, but now, uh, now I'm retired. I've been retired for about 10 years, but it took us about four years to do the book. That took a lot of my time, usually nighttime. And I'm helping a couple of four or five other companies that are going through these same kind of growth periods. Um, and it's fun. And I learn a lot from observing the CEOs of those companies. They're all very, very talented young people. So I'm, I'm still in the learning process. I'll probably be learning until I, until I say goodbye. <laughs> That's what life's all about. Well, I thank you very much. <laughs> for joining us, Tom. It's really been interesting. Uh, and I think we got a lot of lessons that we've talked about. If you've missed any of the show, you'll find a link to this show on our website, thementorsradio.com. You will also find show notes and a link to Tom's book, The F35. That is thementorsradio.com. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.